Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Benjamin R. Lewick Leadership Podcast, where we believe everyone deserves exceptional leadership. Benjamin brings more than 25 years of leadership and team development experience to the table as he sits down to chat with other seasoned industry leaders and talk through real workplace issues. In each episode, Benjamin identifies action steps that you can start using right away as a leader to address the things that affect personnel, productivity, and profitability. Join us in today's episode as we explore practical and tactical ways that you can create a workplace environment that increases revenue, productivity, and motivation while decreasing stress and personnel churn. Are you ready? Exceptional leadership starts in three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Benjamin, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Before we dive into the conversation with my guest today, I want to remind you to be sure and stick around to the end of the episode. I'll be doing a quick recap of the key takeaways from today's conversation for you and wrapping up everything with a concise summary. I'm really excited about the content we're sharing with you today, so let's get this conversation started. Vin has been managing people in business since the age of 23 and at 64. That's 40 years of management experience in many environments including large and small corporations, volunteer organizations, and academia. He holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, a master's in software engineering. He's a Lean Six Sigma black belt and a certified scrum master. He spent most of his career working with embedded systems. For those of us that don't know what that is, that's the small computers inside of other things. And he's led teams as small as two and as large as 200 people with co-located remote and virtual teams both domestically and internationally. In addition to his business, he is adjunct faculty at Santa Clara University and sits on the industry advisory board for the electrical engineering departments at Stevens and Santa Clara, where he's a chair. He's also on the advisory board at several nonprofits. With this experience, he has seen and been both good and bad management. Vin, welcome to the program today. So good to have you on. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the things as I was reading through uh, your more in-depth expanded bio that really struck me is how confidently authentic you are, both in in acknowledging the fact like, hey, I'm human, I've made mistakes, but I've learned from them, but then also celebrating the accomplishments that you and your team have have done. You're not afraid to pat yourselves on the back and you're not afraid to to take a knee and say, hey, that didn't work. Let's figure out why and learn from it. Is there anything from your vast experience of 40 years plus that really just kind of jumps out at you and and you want to really key in on to kind of set up our conversation today. Yeah, I think, you know, I learned early on that the key to all of this, uh, whether it's business, whether it's life in general is relationships and you can't have relationships with people if you don't know them. And I think I got that from my mom, honestly, um, who really, took the time to understand everybody around her and treat them the way they wanted to be treated. Right. So, so that I was lucky to have that in, in the way I was raised, but there are plenty of people who have the same kind of feeling. And sometimes they don't take it to the office because they think that there's this Chinese wall between their personal life and their business life. And I think one of the things that helped break that wall down for me was having been an entrepreneur at an early age because for entrepreneurs the three parts of your life the business life the personal life and the family life 
aren't separate. They get woven together like a braid of hair. Um, there are times when you have to sacrifice business for something that's going on at home. You have to sacrifice uh, your personal life for something that's going on with the family or business. And so those things are very intertwined, unless you have a huge organization where you could say, hey, I'll be back in two weeks. I got something to take care of. You're like a, an old vaudevillian plate spinner trying to keep all the plates uh, spinning. And you realize that those plates are all the different parts of your life, not just the business. Indeed. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you said, I think, really is foundational um, to a lot of my leadership concepts as well. It's really talking about starting with the relationships, starting with the individual, really emphasizing the humanity of people. A lot of times we've we've heard is like, oh, well, you know, leave your emotions at home, you know, leave your drama out of the office. And that is that is denying part of who we are as a person. At the end of the day, like every company, every organization, whether they are, you know, consumer direct, business to business, business to consumer, you know, whatever their format is of bringing value to the marketplace, at the end of the day, every interaction is a human to human interaction. And both humans on each side of that have hopes, dreams, fears, frustrations, desires, motivators, demotivators. And to ignore that is to ignore the very thing that makes that interaction and that business so dynamic and so fulfilling. Yep, absolutely. No question. I, so I don't know how you can manage anybody that you don't know well enough to care about them. That, that's just always been my, and there are people who do, I, you know, people have said to me, you're always hiring friends and family and, you know, kids are friends and, you know, how do you draw the line? I'm like, you know what? I hire people who are appropriate for the job and they know going in that they're going to get feedback from me. And if they can't handle it, it good or bad, because they get both from me, uh, and then, then they should, you know, proceed with caution. But I have no issue with it. And even people who I didn't know who joined my companies, ended up becoming really good friends over time. This is such a such an intriguing concept from a leadership perspective. Um, it almost seems kind of counterintuitive to a lot of the ways that we've heard about growing up. Um, I refer to it as kind of the status quo coming out of the industrial revolution era, um, where it's more of an emphasis on revenue and profits and productivity and the processes to keep the machine chugging along than it is on the people that make it all possible. My question is, have you always had this mindset when it came to leading people and developing teams? Or was there kind of maybe a, a season or a specific incident that you could point to in your experience? It was like kind of a turning point for you where you realized like, hey, this is how I need to start interacting with people. You know, there's a couple of things that I can think of, you know, from my early career being a manager. You had mentioned that I was a manager at 23. I was really lucky as an engineer to come into engineering as a part of technology was really starting to flourish this whole embedded systems and microcontrollers thing and so having started my career that way i was always considered an expert so uh, and and as i moved from job to job which wasn't very often i was hired to bring that technology to that company and so it meant hiring people and building teams often from scratch, sometimes you'd inherit one or two people and have to move things around and, and enhance the team. And, and I remember early on, I was very casual about my management. I wanted, not that I wanted everybody to be my friend or everybody to like me, but I wanted to treat everyone with what I would call 
overly ambitious kindness. And you can't really do that and expect your team to perform or your team to respect you. You know, I came to learn that regardless of wanting to be, to act like you're a member of the team that you're managing, you have an inherent role power as their boss because they still see you as the person who could fire them or give them a raise or whatever. So no matter what, you can't, you can't shed that power in their mind. And so you can't just act like you're always their peer. That doesn't mean you can't work shoulder to shoulder to them, but at some point you have to take a management and a leadership role when things are going well to encourage that, or when things are going poorly to make changes to correct that. And so I made a lot of those kinds of mistakes early on where I either let things go too long or I said things in a very jokingly way that I would say to a friend of mine at a bar, uh, to an employee, hoping to soften the blow of saying something bad. And it just didn't come off right. And and actually, honestly, lost a couple of employees that way. And, and um, it was really a sad kind of thing. Um, the other thing that really stands out that I think to some extent shaped my style going forward. When I was dating the woman who's now my wife, it was a long distance relationship for six years. I lived in Connecticut. She lived in Chicago. And so I had a lot of free time because I wasn't, you know, going out to bars and things with friends in my twenties and whatever, you know, I, I was home. And so I started getting involved in some volunteer organizations. And one of the organizations that I got involved with was a local theater. I was always a big theater person, music person, you know, I'm except for my technical training as an engineer, I'm essentially right brained, right. And, um, and I started taking notice because we'd be there late building sets or folding programs for a show that's going to open in three minutes or whatever. And these volunteers would come and show up and do things. Sometimes we as an organization didn't even have enough money to buy pizza and they chipped in and bought their own pizza so we could keep going. And I just marveled at what was there, what was there that made them want to keep coming and it was a motivation, certainly, you know, people say, oh, I pay my people well, they should be motivated, or I should, you know, they, I give them, you know, good health care, they should be motivated. Those are all important things. But once you get high enough on Maslow's hierarchy where you um, can exist, then there are other things that motivate people to be there. And I remember, I was a young manager, maybe in my mid-20s, and I worked for a division of Emerson Electric, who's a huge company out of St. Louis. And at the time, it was managed by a guy by the name of Chuck Knight and a bunch of his college football friends. And um, and they were this, you know, very, you know, at the time, manly and, you know, constant growth every quarter. This is it. And it's all about profit and this and that. Um, and I remember and, and we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have email even. And I remember writing an article for the company newsletter that never got published because they thought it was stupid that that talked about managing a volunteer workforce and you, we should be striving to manage a volunteer workforce, even in corporate America, because if somebody's good, yes, you're paying them. That's not the part that's volunteerism, but if they're good and they're sitting in your seat instead of your competitor's seat, there's a piece of that that's volunteerism. And if you can tap into what motivates that volunteerism, they will stay in your seat instead of moving on. 
they thought this was all kind of cosmic woo-woo and, and way too touchy-feely for them. So that never that never got published. But you know, that thought process and that um way of treating people kind of shaped what I wanted to learn and the and the and the mentors that I uh sort of gravitated toward over the years that shaped my management style. I think what you what you're talking about there is is such a such a fascinating concept. I mean, really, it boils down to like that true litmus test of leadership is that if you weren't paying the people anymore, you know, really like, or if you you go into a volunteer organization, like you said, I've also worked with volunteer organizations. Like the first team that I ever started at the age of 15 was a volunteer organization team and people voluntarily showed up for that. It's really that baptism in fire and, and that real litmus test to find out, do you actually know how to lead people? people who don't have to be there, people who you aren't holding leverage of their paycheck or their benefits over their head, you yep. know, and, and asking yourself that question as a leader is like, hey, if I wasn't paying these people anymore, how many of them would stick around? Obviously, like if they, if their bills were paid and things like that, they wouldn't just leave because they have to go pay their bills. But if their bills were paid and you no longer had that power over them, where you were holding on to the purse strings, how many of them would actually stay on your team and keep working shoulder to shoulder with you? I think that's a very telling question, very, very solid um, self-reflection question. It's it's a litmus test, not only of your leadership skills direct to them, but how your leadership skills affect the way the team interacts with each other, because they may want to be there for you, or they may want to be there to be with their team members. Uh, my dad, uh, my mother told the story until the day she died. My dad used to work for AC Gilbert, which is the company that made the Lionel trains and the old erector sets. And when the company went under, um, all the engineers, because my dad was a manufacturing engineer, went and found other jobs. And, and a lot of them stayed friends and saw each other socially. And my mother used to say, you know, if AC Gilbert opened their doors again, every one of these guys would go back there and take a cut and pay just to go work together again. And that's a testament to the way they were managed and the way the teams had autonomy and um, and were prepared and enabled and just really built um, relationships vertically and horizontally, which is so important for a leader to make happen. So, you know, I think part of managing a team is making the team understand that their roles to some extent are going to be dynamic, right? There, if, if you think, or the way I think about it, there are three kind of roles within any organization. There are individual contributors, there's managers, and there's leaders. The individual contributor produces work that's theirs. Managers produce things through others. And leaders define and control the direction of movement. And when I say control, I'm talking really about going back to the Latin root of that word, because it doesn't mean influence, it means check. If you were to say, check the weather in Italian, which is the language most closely to Latin, it's controllare il tempo. It means to check it, not to control the weather. Can't control the weather. And so if you, you need to check and then make adjustments. That is fascinating, really getting into the, the kind of the, the background of, of that language and really putting things into perspective. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, um, I actually actually talked about this, I think, on episode two of the podcast. You know, if AC Gilbert opened their doors again, a bunch of the people who used to work there would take a pay cut to go back to work for him. 
you know, yep. and I'd mentioned a, uh, a recent uh, survey that I read to where they said almost three quarters of the people who were surveyed said that they would be willing to take a pay cut to go work somewhere else where they felt appreciated, understood, valued, and that they were making a real contribution to a, a real mission and vision that they yeah. could resonate with. Yeah, because in the end of the day, they want to walk home, drive home, ride their bike home, feeling good about the day. And and part of that is what you accomplish. And part of that is how you feel about those accomplishments, right? Absolutely. So when it comes to when it comes to really developing that culture, you know, that's really the key is are you creating a culture that people want to be a part of and that people want to keep coming back to? Yeah. So, and 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 you know, people, a lot of people misthink about culture. They think you can just come in and change a culture. You can't. In fact, I got offered a job and I took the job because they wanted me to change the culture. And then I started doing what you're supposed to do to change a culture, which is change the way you manage. And they're like, well, you're, you know, we didn't bring you in to change the way we manage. We brought you in to change the culture. And I said, you can't, it was really funny because I was having this sort of discussion slash argument with my boss uh, which is always a precarious place. Um, and I said, look, you can't change a culture director directly. You change the way you manage and the culture follows. And he disagreed. And and in the literally the next issue of Harvard Business Review, there was an article that said, you can't change the culture. You change the way the man you manage and the culture follows. It was like one of the best timings of my life. And and it's it's really funny because people often mix the difference between um, the results and the goal that will get you those results. I used to work that, that same company, uh, Branson Ultrasonics, part of Emerson. I used to work with a guy who was a head of manufacturing, Bernie Gracie. And he used to say uh, that profit was not the objective. The objective was meeting customer needs. Profit was a reward for having done that well. I think companies have lost that focus and and that's part of the problem, right? I completely agree with you. Like that perspective, at least for me, is so spot on. It's like you go into business because you identify customer needs. It's like, yep. yes, yes, we want to be profitable. That's how we stay in business. But the revenue and the profit and the growth is a byproduct of meeting the needs of a segment of the market better than anyone else is doing it. Yep. Yeah. I think Henry Ford was the one who said, uh, companies need to make a profit or they won't exist, but companies that only exist for profit won't exist for very long because they have no reason to exist. Such a good point. You yeah. know, in um, here recently, um, I recently dropped a couple of videos, I think a short one on Instagram and then a longer one on YouTube talking about culture in the workplace. And the way that I defined it was, you know, very simply, culture is the way that we think about the things that we do and how we do them. And just going to your point of if you want to change the culture, change the way the management implements things and and the way that the leadership casts the vision, you know, it has to start there and it has to start with the way things are done because that is very integral to the culture itself. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, and I like to always bring things back as close to the basics as possible so you could build on that. In the end, managers are required to deliver two things results and retention, right? Those are the two things that managers are employed to do. Yeah. Uh, add to that, create and communicate a vision and, and that 
gives you leadership. Anyone can be a leader. You need one thing. You need followers. But that doesn't mean that you are leading in a right way where you're not losing followers and gaining followers instead of having a consistent following and that you're leading toward the right thing or in an efficient way. And so there are other skills around those basics that really need to happen. And um, when you look at those three roles, individual contributor, manager, and, and leader, they're not individual people, they're individual activities within the people on your team that will change. If you were going to reorganize uh, your corporate office and you had a bunch of boxes in a corner that needed to be moved into a storage area and you asked three of your people to come in on Saturday and move them so that by Monday morning, the new people could bring the furniture in, they would show up on Saturday. Let, let's assume they would show up on Saturday. You're not there. You've you've told them what you wanted them to do. You've given them the autonomy to do it. You've given them all the tools out of that group of seemingly equivalent people, a leader for that day or for that hour or for those four hours will emerge. That's true. They take a leadership, they take a leadership role for a short period and then they go back to being individual contributors. And so you slide through that a lot. And I have, you know, when I, when I coach young people out of school or if I'm doing some of the other parts of my business and I'm working with the CEO and we get, get to talk about culture like this or something over dinner or lunch and we start talking and he asks my opinion uh, about this kind of stuff. I always draw this graph that shows these three things and how they change in percentage on average as you go through the height of an organization. So as you come in as someone who works on the line, let's say, providing something to a customer all the way up to CEO and how the mix of individual contributorship, management and leadership changes. But none of them ever go to zero. And this graph is just an average over time. And if you were to zoom in on any one part of it, you're going to see all kinds of uh, sort of fluctuations in that as things come to, to bear. I mean, it's not even just that someone naturally emerges because other people don't want to be the leader. You know, be, be, before he got in trouble, <laughs> um, Will Smith said something really interesting in an interview on a show once. He said, you know, uh, people have talents and they have skills and talents are the things that you're born with and you have to do a little bit of work to really refine them, but they're natural things that you will fall to when you need to fall to something. Uh, skills are the things that you develop having some interest and some ability that lets you go through it uh, to, to become better at it than you were when you started. And different people on different teams have different talents and have developed different skills simply because they all live different lives, getting to the point where they all came together to be on your team. You can't even begin to know what those people's talents and skills are without knowing those people, without meeting with them on a regular basis, without caring about them, without knowing what's going on in their lives. They might have a talent or a skill that's being masked because they have, who knows, a dying parent, a sick pet, a, a problem with a tenant somewhere. And, and if you don't know those things are going on in your, in, in their lives, you are losing out on some tools that you could have to be a better manager or a better leader. Absolutely. Um, one of the, one of the leaders that I've interacted with in the past, one of the things that he used to say is that good leadership is intrusive by nature, that you actually are a part of the people on your team's lives. You know what's going on. 
outside of the office or outside of wherever your place of work is because you genuinely care about that person and you want to help them become the best version of themselves and show up for themselves. So if there's extenuating circumstances or if there's peripheral or ancillary concerns that are impacting their performance or impacting their their mood or their attitude when they're interacting with other people on the team, a good leader wouldn't ignore that. A good leader would lean into that and be like, hey, what's going on today, man? Like, let's talk, you and me. Yeah, absolutely. So talking through some of the challenges and things like this, you know, that you've faced with teams over the years, I go, I want to ask kind of a two-part question. One, are there a couple of a uh, couple of lessons that you've learned either because you did something with a team and it worked out really well and you're like, heck yeah, gold star, let's put that one on the fridge. Or maybe it was it was a disaster and you reflected on it and you learned a really valuable lesson. So really what's the lesson learned from the experience? And then the second part would be, what's some practical wisdom that you can pass on to our listeners that they can take and put in their pocket in their toolkit so if they come across this type of situation with their team and their company, they're like, oh, I've got this tool that I can use to implement to, to try to solve this issue that's coming up for me. I, I think yeah, those are great questions, by the way. I think that one of my major flaws still as a manager or a leader is either, either the hope or the assumption that the people working with me are as enthusiastic about something as I am and are willing to um, maybe step outside either their comfort zone or even do something that we feel needs to be done, but the company around us can't support all the resources. And so we have to work harder than we think we should. I'm someone who just does that because I see the greater good at the end of it all. Uh, and I'm usually pretty good at conveying that vision and trying to build the enthusiasm around it, but that doesn't mean that everybody around me does. And there have been times when like I've spent money on equipment that I really felt would help the company. And somebody who was working for me said, you know, instead of spending that money, you should have given us a bonus. It's like, well, okay. You know, it's- There's always the naysayers, right? Hey. Well, there's the naysayers and there's a, you know, I don't make, I don't make sports analogies because I'm just not a sports person and and they I always mess them up. And and as you know, I don't really make a lot of um uh, military analogies because I think it's disingenuous because I I never served and and by the way, thank you for your service again. I appreciate um, that, man. But but I will say this, and you and I have actually talked about this. Um, the role of a manager is to win every battle put in front of them. And the role of a leader is to decide which battles to lose in order to win the war. And that means that the leader inherently knows some things that the managers don't know. Uh, I do make a lot of pop culture references and, and, you know, unfortunately I'm old now. So a lot of them, you know, <laughs> people don't get, but if you ever saw the West wing, um, which is a show about the West Wing. There's a great scene where the communications director is talking to the vice president who says something and they said, Mr. Vice President, do you know something we don't know? And he said, the total tonnage of what I know that you don't know could stop a team of oxen dead in their tracks. And it's not that he's smarter, but he's just exposed to more and has a different perspective. And so 
part of getting your people to accept the fact that you have a different perspective and the decisions that you're making may not be the ones that they're making from what they see, but they have enough respect to feel like you're making the right ones from where you see uh, is, is the way you treat them, the consistency the way, with the way you show up um, and the trust that you build. I tell my son this all the time. Trust is an account that allows for very small deposits but very big withdrawals. <laughs> and so um, if you're going to build your team on trust, you have to show up with trust. You have to trust them and you have to do things that are trustworthy. And so um, I strive to do that. I'm not perfect. I don't always do it. And I don't necessarily convey all the reasons for the things that I'm doing. Sometimes I can't because it's a confidentiality issue. Um, but I will say, look, I can't tell you everything. There's more to this story. You're going to have to trust me. And if you do, let's move forward. So that, that's one thing. Um, uh, in terms of a piece of, of advice that I would give anybody, either as an employee or, or as a manager, don't work for a jerk. As much as you want to save the world, and, and I have tried so many times to be a good manager buffer for someone above me who was a horrible manager, there's only so much you can do. First of all, if they recognize that you're a better manager than they are, they get threatened and um, and they start starving your resources so you don't perform as well as a manager. Uh, but more importantly, even if they don't realize it, they don't see value in what you're doing. And so they're not gonna fund those things that, that don't meet their criteria for management, whether it's highest performance, whether it's highest profit, whether it's whatever it is, if they're not a good manager, their priorities are not the same as yours. And it's really easy to say, go find another job. But really, if you don't want to come home and be miserable and kick the dog and all the you know little things that people say about having a bad day, just don't work for a jerk. I've worked for a couple of jerks. So let me tell you, even though I learned a couple of things from them, they I would not want to go to work in the morning. And, and I've said to everybody, look, you are going to work a third of the rest of your life essentially, right? Eight hours a day. Yep. And you're going to sleep for a third of your life. So half the time you're awake, you're going to be at work. If you are not in a, an environment that uh, makes you feel good as a manager, as an individual contributor, as a leader, um, you're going to lead a miserable life. You know, the way you treat people, we've talked about relationships and stuff. That's not just about a good manager doesn't just treat their own people that way. They treat everybody in the organization that way. They treat everybody outside of the organization that way. When I talk about stakeholders in a business, I talk about customers for sure. I talk about investors for sure. Those are the two obvious things, the people who are giving you money either as an investment or by buying your product, but it's employees, it's suppliers, and it's the community that you're in. And you need to treat all of those people in the same way. You know, funny story about growing up when I was in the dating process, one of the things that I would look for was how the person I was dating was treating the waitstaff at a restaurant. Yep. They were going to treat, you know, if they wanted a relationship with me, hopefully they were going to treat me well. But how they treated those other people to who to them they might never, ever see again or maybe doesn't matter. Um, th that says a lot about who someone is as a person. And your people are watching that, too. 
if you are constantly talking about, you know, those people in accounting, they suck, or, you know, I hate the law, I hate the legal team, or, you know, this, this company, you know, if it wasn't for me, or, or however they say it, you know, would never, would never close a piece of business. They're watching how you talk about those people when they're not there. And they wonder if you're talking about them that way, when they're not there. So showing up consistency consistently is really important for building trust. Absolutely. You're talking about uh, kind of that character check, you know, seeing how yep. somebody treats wait staff. I uh, recommend to leaders a, a, something very similar to that in a hiring process, especially if you're hiring for a mid or upper level manager or somebody going into a C-suite position. Yep. Have somebody in a lower level capacity, whether it's an executive assistant or a secretary or um, maybe a line worker, have them do the initial interview with a pre-templated format, you know, so they don't have to come up with the questions. Like all they have to do is just ask the questions, write down the answers, make notes and things like this is not overly complex. So it's definitely something at their skill level. Um, but specifically to filter out the people who have character flaws, because if they are going to be demeaning or condescending or abusive to someone that they feel is beneath them, either in, in a business hierarchy or an experience or in expertise, that's not the kind of attitude that you want on your team, hopefully. So that is, that is a tip that I recommend for people who are hiring people into management or leadership roles is to perform yep. that particular character check to filter out, I guess, the, uh, the bad apples, if you want to put a term on it. <laughs> when I worked in big companies that actually had, you know, lobbies and receptionists and stuff, I would always go out and ask the receptionist about whether the person was friendly when they came in, uh, if they were smiling when they were sitting and, and, you know, waiting for someone to pick them up, they knew I was going to ask. So they were paying attention to those things. And you could tell a lot about how someone, you know, treats the person in the lobby. Absolutely. Especially, uh, you know, it's really an integrity thing. It's when they think maybe nobody's watching and they're like, oh, well, this person is just, you know, entry level or they are, you know, low man on the totem pole, you know, whatever term you want to give it. A lot, a lot of times I've seen in, in toxic environments that people will be more dismissive and demeaning to people like that. Yep. So, you know, you're talking about uh, um, dealing with toxic environments and things like this. I have worked in a couple of toxic environments and you're saying don't work for a jerk. I've been put in positions before where I was that uh, that liaison for my team to someone who uh, definitely had areas for growth. At the end of the day, what I what I ended up having to tell my team, you know, once I built trust with them, I told them, hey, look, this is this is the goal. This is the mission. Here's how what we're doing as a as a department, as a vertical within this organization nests within the overall mission and vision of the company. This is our piece of the pie to, to get right. So I'm not going to micromanage you. This is, this is the intent. This is the vision. This is the end state that we're heading towards. I expect you to take discipline initiative in pursuit of that end state and that intent. And if you make mistakes, you know, if you make honest mistakes, taking discipline initiative, I will underwrite them all day long. And if, if my boss wants to chew on me, and, and rip me a new one because of that, I'm happy to take that for you because I want you to feel protected and supported by me. And I want you to feel encouraged and incentivized to get out there and start being a leader in your role, in, in, the, in the capacity that you are acting for this team. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so important that your people feel that way. Um, when I, when I took uh, the VP position out in Silicon Valley, I was being interviewed by somebody who I had known for, for years, who was an editor in chief of a magazine. And, and we were doing an inter, uh, uh, an audio interview uh, and he said, okay, you've run a lot of small companies. You've been in a lot of small companies. You're now in this $10 billion organization. How is leading different in, in this organization? And I said, you know, there are, it, there are pluses and minuses. You have more resources in terms of money and people and stuff. But in the end, uh, the leadership is the same thing, right? You are creating a, a vision. You're communicating the vision and building enthusiasm around it. You're empowering and enabling your team. It's no good to empower them if you don't give them the resources and the training and stuff that they need. And then you're monitoring the situation, both what they're doing and the situation that caused you to create that vision and giving feedback and making changes along the way that, that, you know, and, and removing obstacles. Those, those are the things you do as a leader for your team. And it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, 200 people in a $10 billion organization, or it's three people folding, uh, folding, um, uh, menus at a restaurant or folding programs at a theater. You know, I, when I was in my twenties in college or in late, late teens in college, my uncle owned a, a, um, an Italian pastry shop and he was having real trouble hiring people. And my, my mom said, it was her brother. She said, can you go work with uncle Frank for a little bit on your off hours from school? And I said, sure. And I went there and, and, you know, I was washing pots and pans. That's what they needed to do. And he came over and he showed me what to do. And he said, Hey, I know you think this is, you know, really not important. It's really helping us out. And let me tell you why it's important that we're washing these things this way with the creams and things that we're doing, uh, using there, there are lots of bacteria, botulism, all kinds of things can happen. We don't want any of our customers getting sick. So making sure that these vats are clean when you're done is incredibly important to our success. I will tell you for a lot of people, that conversation may have just, you know, rolled off their shoulder for me. I can't stand at a sink today and wash a pot or a pan without thinking about uncle Frank. And that's how powerful that conversation was. He wasn't a trained leader. He didn't even go to college. He was nine years old and broke a window with a bunch of friends playing baseball. And my grandfather dragged him to Mr. Lucibello and said, give my kid a job and get him off the street. And, and that's where he started at nine years old, working in the pastry shop. He went into the army. He came back. He went back to work for Mr. Lucibello and ended up buying the business from him when he wanted to retire. That was his education. And yet he had this natural ability to not only teach people what to do, but to teach them the and show them the value in their contribution. And that's a big piece of, you know, making people feel like they are really part of the team and what they do matters. Absolutely. You know, as leaders, a lot of times um, you mentioned that that anecdote from the West Wing and, and having that that tonnage of information that a lot of people on the team don't have in terms of what they're exposed to and, and understand. As leaders, when we're talking about a vision, we're talking about the mission, we're talking about all of the things that go into the future success of the company, we've incubated that and meditated on that and thought about it and reflected on it so much as a leader that it's almost second nature to us. A lot of times when we talk to other people about it, we leave out a lot of things because they seem so, so unimportant, so second nature to us from our lens, from our frame of reference. 
So, you know, I, I absolutely agree. You know, one of the reasons I think that, that that conversation is so impactful, not only for you, but for a lot of other people who've had similar situations where a leader has taken the time to explain to them like, hey, from my lens, let me give you a glimpse into why what you're doing is so important. The why behind the what, you know, why yeah. it matters that you're doing this to standard, to whatever the the KPIs, the metrics, the processes, there's a reason for this. And this is why, this is why it's important. And this is why what you're doing matters to these people. Yep. It's so important. It really is. So as we're wrapping up today, final question for you, looking back across the landscape of your leadership journey and your professional career and things like this, is there one piece of advice that you could point to and say, hey, this lesson learned, this piece of advice, this this tool in my tool belt as a leader, as a manager, this has served me better than anything else, you know, or has had the most far reaching impact over the course of my career. I would love it if you could share that with us and with the listeners and, and, you know, maybe kind of give them some practical wisdom of how they could take that and apply that to, to their leadership journey in their organization. Absolutely. Um, in addition to trust, which you and I have both highlighted a lot in this conversation, I, I, say this all the time in the absence of good communication conspiracy theory and um wild thoughts fester and there's really no better antidote to that than communicating even if even if you can't say everything or you don't know everything to say hey this is what's going on i don't know what's what is really happening i will find out we're going to get through this together and communicating as much as you can. You don't you don't want assumptions, you don't want conspiracy, you don't want look, everyone is looking for a story because everyone wants to feel comfortable. If you only give them pieces of the story, they will fill in the rest of the story themselves and they will draw conclusions based on that story. I'm working with a client now who has a client and I'm in the middle of this because I'm also working directly with that other client. And they're not talking to each other and they're both making assumptions about what the lack of communication means. And I, and I know the whole story because I know both pieces, right? And I'm saying both of you are drawing bad conclusions based on incomplete communication. You just need to make sure that you are open kimono on all of this stuff and you will be fine. And, and it's just amazing to watch. It's like watching a, a train wreck that you can't do anything about, but it's just sort of happening, right? Yeah. It's communication, trust. You know, these are the things that are the foundation for any group of people working together, whether it's in a company or in, in a volunteer organization or hanging out in a neighborhood and treating people with, with respect. I mean, if you meet a stranger on the street, you should treat them with a certain amount of respect until they lose it somehow. You treat them with a certain amount of trust, but not as high, right? You wouldn't meet somebody on the street and say, hold this thousand dollars from me. I'll be back on Tuesday, right? Because they haven't built that trust. And so why would you expect your people, your suppliers, your customers, your any of your stakeholders to invest in you in one way or another? They're investing time, they're investing money, they're investing energy if they don't trust you. I mean, even if you think about vendors, right? They're sending you something net 30. For 30 days, they've invested money in your company. 
Because if you don't pay them, they lost that money. <laughs> so it, it's an investment that they're making. And, and if you don't treat all of them with trust, if you don't communicate what's going on, um, it, it, it really starts to create this cancer that turns into a toxic environment that, that none of us really wants. That's such a good point, really emphasizing that open communication. I know I've, I mentioned this a lot. It's, it's I guess, one of my, my uh, soapboxes that I stand up on, but I keep coming back to this. You know, the number one thing that prevents organizations from accomplishing their goals and is the number one thing that has contributed to the quiet quitting and the great resignation and things like this is communication issues. Yep. It's miscommunication, lack of communication, um, or ineffective communication. People who are talking, but they're saying stuff in a way that people don't understand. Like you're not, you're not talking to people in a way that they can perceive or or realize. Okay, well, this is what he's saying. You know, a lot of people just talk to hear themselves talk. And at the end of the day, real communication is all about that mutual understanding. And you can't understand someone unless you actually care to understand the why behind what they're saying. And you have to take the time, take the patience, put in the effort to make sure that what you're saying is actually being said in a way that can be understood by the other person. Yeah. And, and, you know, the communication uh, also goes, you, you know, in, in the book, you, you talk about delegation and how people delegate so poorly that it's bound to fail. Right. And, and, um, that's about communication. It's about empowerment. It's about enablement. And, and um, people just want you to, you know, turn this screw and they walk away. And there's a difference between delegation and abdication for sure. Uh, and there's also a difference between delegation and having someone do the dirty work and you um, sort of making every decision. And, and, and so you need to find the, and you also don't want them to fail. Right. So if you say, well, they're not prepared to make the decisions, then prepare them. That's part of the enablement, not just the empowerment, right? That that's all goes into that whole piece. Absolutely. Um, I, I love that uh, drawing that, that parallel between delegation and abdication, dumping things on people that you yep. don't want to do. Yep. This is not empowering. You're not setting them up for success. I, I was recently talking about this with a couple of other leaders about how good leaders aren't afraid to delegate to people. They're not afraid to delegate decision-making authority to people because they understand that as a leader, as a mentor, they're developing that person so that when they hand off a responsibility to them, that person will eventually be able to do it better than they as a leader ever could. And yeah. That's, that's effective delegation is by extending your capabilities as a team. Yeah. I, you know, I had a bookkeeper when I had um, the engineering company outside of Boston and we used to go over the accounts receivable every week. Bookkeeping is not one of my strengths. It's just not me. I, I, and I know it. And I could say, you know, you should do all the things to shore up your weaknesses. But you know what? You could spend your whole life shoring up your weaknesses and never play on any of your strengths. So you should make sure that your weaknesses don't hold you back, but but play to your strengths. And she was really good. And she would give me all these numbers. And, 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 and I would be calling these clients for, um, for collection. And I hated those calls and I, and, and it, you know, I would put them off and it would, and finally I said, Don, you know, you can make these calls on my behalf. I'm okay with it. You can, if you want to work out terms with them, you don't need to follow, you don't need to pass any of that by me. She was so thrilled that she now got control of this cash flow entirely herself. 
that it was great. I didn't need to be, I was in the way, right? I was in the way because I was slowing it down. It's something I dreaded doing. I wanted to be the engineer and the manager and all those sort of right brain creative things. And, uh, you know, I still can't do a T account properly. I have to, you know, I'm like a bad poker player. If you work with a bad poker player, or if you play with a bad poker player, you can see it in their head. They're looking in the hand going, okay, two pair beats a pair, three of a kind. I mean, they're running through the whole thing in their head. And that's what I do in my bookkeeping. I know one thing that if you debit cash, it goes up. And from that, I have to derive everything else because I can't remember any of the other ones. And, and so why am I wasting my time doing that when it's not my strength and I can have people who are strong at it, who aren't strong at the things that I'm strong at, do it. As a leader, yeah. having that, that courage to get out of your own way and let your team members rise to the level of their proficiency, rise to the level of their potential, and mentor them along the way, help them become the best versions of themselves. Yeah, and find out the direction that they want to go in and invest in their growth as well. Because if you invest in their growth, they will be loyal long after they're not working with you. I just had dinner in Boston with a couple of the guys who used to work for me because I was in Boston with a former student who wanted to meet them. And I said, well, let's see if we can do dinner. They all showed up. They all had great stories. They were all thrilled to be back together again. You know what? For me, that's a win. That That's a total emotional win for me. I was on a high for a couple of days from that dinner. And, and it's great. And, and, you know, I have kids that I hired from high school uh, robot, you know, teams that I hired for summer stuff. And they decided after being exposed to the work that we were doing, they wanted to be engineers. They went to Boston University. They went to Wentworth College. Uh, these are great things. You know, you influence the world. It's, it's that community piece of the stakeholders, right? You influence the world around you, either positively or negatively, but very rarely in the null. And so why not have it be a positive influence? So for our listeners, be sure you grab a copy of the full show notes for this episode. There's going to be a lot of additional content in there, uh, more information about Vin, including his contact information. If you really resonated with the stuff that he's had to say today, or you want to reach out and get in touch with him and uh, connect with him and find out what it looks like to uh, connect with him and work with him, be sure and grab a copy of the show notes because all the information is in there. Vin, I really appreciate you being on here today, sharing Thanks your for having me. experience with us. It's been so good. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, really. Hey, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now let's wrap everything up and bring it home with a nice, concise summary, okay? I've got seven points for you to pull out of this conversation that I had with Vin that you can use with your teams and your organizations to apply and anchor the concepts that we talked about. Number one, balancing business, entrepreneurship, and family life. Leaders should understand that their personal and professional lives are intertwined and that they may need to make sacrifices in different seasons. They should also be transparent and communicate clearly with their team, especially when those sacrifices impact their work. Manage your team's expectations as you transition through the different seasons of business and life, since they never progress independent from one another. Number two, employee motivation. Leaders need to adopt a paradigm shift and approach their team as they would a volunteer organization, creating a fulfilling and engaging work environment to encourage motivation and commitment. They should also recognize that compensating employees well doesn't guarantee motivation and that they must work to build a team that is willing to show up and work with each other. Ask yourself this question. If no one on my team had to work to pay their bills anymore, 
What would incentivize them to stay part of the team? Number three, defining and controlling the direction of the organization. Leaders must be proactive in defining and controlling the direction of the organization, checking and making necessary adjustments. They should avoid trying to forcibly change the culture, but instead change the way leading and managing people is done in the organization. Ask your team for feedback about the way management and leadership is perceived by the people in the company and how that perception is impacting the culture of the organization. Number four, fostering team member talents and skills. Good leadership involves creating an environment that fosters the use and growth of each team member's unique talents and skills. Leaders should cultivate trust and support within the team, even if team members are not as enthusiastic as they are. Often you'll find that people's enthusiasm and commitment levels rise in direct proportion to their belief that you genuinely care about them as a leader. Number five, making decisions with the team's well-being in mind. Leaders must make decisions based on a broader, deeper, and more holistic perspective, always keeping the team's well-being in mind. They should help their team understand that their decisions are not just about winning battles, but about winning the war overall, and that they are always made with the team's well-being in mind. Establish the habit of being as open and transparent with your team as much as you realistically can. This will build a foundation of trust that your team members can lean on during those times when you have to make decisions based on information that you can't share with them. Number six, building a strong team culture. Leaders should work to build a strong organizational culture, one that is aligned with the company's vision and mission. They should enforce standards, protect that culture, and articulate a clear vision and mission to their team. People are naturally drawn to becoming part of something bigger than themselves, but if you don't paint that picture for them as the leader, it's going to be very difficult to get people to see what's worth their time, effort, and commitment. And finally, number seven, encouraging employee engagement. Leaders should encourage employee engagement by creating a work environment that is fulfilling, supportive, and empowering. They should aim to make work a place where team members are happy to show up and can grow and develop both personally and professionally. This involves connection and a two-way communication about team members' hopes, dreams, and desires for the future. Have those conversations in the next 30 days with the people on your team and then build out or modify an existing professional development plan accordingly. Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. If you resonate with this podcast, be sure and subscribe so you don't miss any of the future episodes we're gonna be putting out. Also, I would personally appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review this podcast so that other people who would enjoy this content can find it more easily. Also, if you know someone who would like this episode, be sure and share it with them and encourage them to come check out what we're doing over here. You can use the link in the episode description to connect with me on social media. And if you haven't already, go grab a copy of my newest best-selling book, The Antidote. It will absolutely transform the way you think about leadership and developing teams. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves exceptional leadership and you can be that leader. Mm-hmm.